Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. I knew that tonight was not the most convenient night to meet because I'm sure a lot of people are busy getting ready for Shavuos, but I could not bring myself to not have a class on the eve of the holiday that is devoted to Torah and Torah study. So I'm very glad that you're here. I have uh, hopefully three pieces that I'd like to share with you. And if you will start, please, by turning to page 726. The first piece I'd like to share is largely based on an essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Page 726. So this Shabbos, we begin, the Parsha is the beginning of the fourth of the five books of the Torah, the book of Bamidbar. So it's the Parsha of Bamidbar. And it begins with the following words, 726, top of the page, Vayadabir Hashem Moshe. God spoke to Moshe by Midbar Sinai in the Sinai Desert. Midbar means desert. Ba Midbar means in the desert. And this book is mostly about the narratives that occurred to the Jewish people while they were traveling through the desert. And it covers the span of from the second year, one year after leaving Egypt, up until near the end of the 40th year, just about to enter the land of Israel. That's the span of this book. And if you think about it, and you think about the narratives that it contains, there are many parallels between the book of Shemos, Exodus, and the book of Bamidbar, Numbers. Because if you think about it, the book of Exodus also is about a journey. They leave Egypt and start to travel into the desert. The book of Bamidbar is about a journey. They're traveling through the desert. Very similar. There are many themes that are common to both. Complaining about food. Okay, I understand. We always complain about food. But both in the book of Shemos and in the book of Bamidbar, Jews are complaining about the food and complaining at different times about a lack of water. Similar themes. In both of the books, Jews commit a major, horrible, terrible sin. In the book of Shemos, the sin of the golden calf. In the book of Abmidbar, the sin of the spies. Both times, God initially decides that he's going to wipe out the Jewish people. Both times, Moshe comes to the rescue by begging and beseeching God to forgive the Jewish people. And so, as we read through the book of Abmidbar, 
there are many places where we might say to ourselves, well, we just had a book like this. There are many, many similarities. But there's one big difference. And the difference is that in the book of Shemos, of Exodus, the journey is a journey from. We are leaving Egypt. And the book of Amidbar, the journey is a journey to, towards. We are traveling towards our destination, towards Israel. The book of Shemos, Exodus, is largely about looking backwards. The book of Bamidbar is largely about looking forwards to the destination. Now, if you had never read the Torah before, if you did not know anything about the narratives, simply based on what I've described so far, you might imagine that the book of Amidbar ought to be more calm than the book of Shemos. The book of Shemos, there's drama, there's danger, they started out as persecuted and slaves, they're chased, army comes after them, another Amalek, another uh, nation is trying to kill them. They're in a lot of danger. They're, there's a lot of uh, drama, a lot of challenges. And you would assume, not knowing the book of Amidbar, okay, we survived Egypt, we survived Amalek, now we have to travel through the desert. What's in the desert? There's nothing in the desert. It's empty. That's the whole point. So we have a nice, quiet journey until we get to Israel. Nothing's going to happen. Everyone's relaxed. Sit back and relax. But if we have studied the Torah, and as we will see when we study it again, it's exactly the opposite. Because the book of Amidbar has a mood that is a dark mood. The rebellions are more serious. Moshe's leadership seems to falter. We see at times Moshe giving in to anger and despair. Even though the Jewish people knew from the book of Exodus that God was with them and God was protecting them and as long as God protected them, nothing could happen to them. But by the book of Bamidbar, they seem to have forgotten that. And they question. And they're in doubt and they are anxious and the mood is dark. And the Torah is telling us something that is very important. By having what on the surface has similarities between the two books, but within the mood, a very big difference. The Torah is telling us something very important, something that is relevant to the lives of every single one of us as individuals and as a community, 
as a society. And it goes like this. The journey from is always easier than the journey to. Let me use the example of politics. It is much easier and more common to have a revolution than to create a new sustained society. How many times in history does it happen that a revolution takes place but doesn't then go on to create a society that was any better than what came before? Often it's worse. And the same thing happens for individuals. Now, for individuals, there is a biological reason why that is true. Our bodies are created so that we react to great stress and danger. There are physical things that happen in our bodies that allow us to focus, that give us greater strength, adrenaline, to narrow our focus, not to feel pain in certain ways, a whole list of physiological changes that happen in the body. Sometimes we refer to it as fight or flight. Physiological, biological changes that occur in a body that allow a person to confront an immediate danger. And when we are running from we are sometimes, often, able to access strengths we never knew that we had. But running towards is completely different. Because running towards means you have to learn new skills. It means you're going to have to acquire new strengths. you're going to have to run into the unknown. And there, your biology is not helping you. Your adrenaline, your fight or flight response, it's not there anymore. But in both... Please take a look at page 54 and I want to show you earlier in the Torah... A, a, a dramatic example of this and if you have not focused on this before you may be very surprised and then you're going to wonder I've, I, I've, I've, I've read this so many times how is it that I never noticed page 54 okay page 54 one of the most famous verses in the entire Torah Everybody knows this story. By Yomer Hashem al Avram. And God says to Avram, Lech lecha me'artzacha umimeoladetacha mebezavicha el ha'aretz hashereka. Go to the land that I will show you. 
So Avraham initiates this grand project that turns out to be the Jewish people. It turns out to be the beginning of Jewish history. This grand thing. Right near the beginning of the Torah. Who is the first Jew? Let's say Avraham. Who initiates Jewish history? Let's say Avraham. Avraham is the one. Who started it all? Avraham. Vayomer Shema Avraham. Lech Lecha. Go. Turn one page back. Page 52. At the top of the page, Pusik number 31. Vayikach Terach. Terach. Hold on. Terach is the father of Avraham. Terach took Avram, Beno, his son, Ves Lot ben Choram ben Beno, Lot, his nephew, Ves Sarai Kalaso, the wife of Avram Sarai, Asha's Avram Beno, Vayetsu me itam meur kazdim, Loleches Azakanan. He took his family to leave their home and to go to Canaan, which later became Israel. Who started the journey? Not Avram. It was Terach. It was his father. Avram went with his father because his father took him. Father says to his son, come. So the son goes. Who initiated the journey? Terach. The, the Torah says so. Vayikach Terach is Avram. Terach took Avram. So if Terach is the one who left, if Avram, apparently according to this Basak, only left because his father took him, took, didn't say, do you want to go? Should we go? Yikach, he took him. Give me your hand, we're going. If Terach left, what is it that Avram did? How does he become the first Jew? Terach left. Avraham arrived. Leaving is not such a big deal. It's not easy. But it's not such a big deal. Cut your ties with the past. Leave something that you want to get away from. But to make it to Canaan, to make it to Israel, to start a new civilization, to start a new religion, to start a new people, that was Avraham. The Torah is showing it, foreshadowing it for us here. This difference between fleeing from and fleeing to. Fleeing from, okay, Terah, good. You left a place of idolatry, very nice. Fleeing to, that's much more difficult. If you can accomplish that, then you can start a civilization. Then you can start a new people. It's an amazing insight. Abraham was a revolutionary. 
But the revolution of Avraham was not in leaving his home. He went because his father went. Avraham was a revolutionary because he went forward and created something new that had never existed before. Says Rabbi Sachs, to be a Jew is to know that life is a journey. Leaving is easy. Arriving is hard. And there is a an amazing uh, textual indicator of this. Our rabbis tell us there's a word that occurs many, many times in the Torah at the beginning of a narrative, the word Vayahi. Vayahi. And it was. And it came to pass. The book of Esther. Vayahi bimei And it came to pass in the days of Achashverosh, the story of Esther. Vayahi bimei shvot hashoftim. On Shavuos, we're going to read the book of Ruth. It begins with the words, and it came to pass during the days when the judges judged and the book of Ruth. Our rabbis say something amazing. Vayihi, and it came to pass. Our rabbis say every time the word Vayihi is used in the Torah, it is introducing something bad that happened. Vayihi bimeach what happened in Achashverosh? Well, first of all, Vashti got killed. Then there was a decree against the Jews. Okay, by the end it turns around. But the initial thing that it, it, that, that it introduces is very negative. By Hashoftim, the book of Ruth, there was a famine. They had to leave. Husband and two sons died. Doesn't start off so good. Okay, it turns around. But the initial progression from the word Vayihi is always negative. Because what does Vayihi mean? Vayihi mean, means Vayihi. And it happened. There are two ways to go through life. One way is to plan where you're going. To think about the direction that you want to get to. To think about the destination at which you want to arrive. That's one way. And then there's another way to live. Vayihi. And it happened. I respond. I react. But when you only respond, when you only react, and you don't think about where do you want to get to, bad things happen. And we see that most clearly in the book of Bemibor. Because in the book of Amidbar, as we will see over the next number of portions, the Jewish people, while they're traveling through the desert in the book of Amidbar, they make mistakes. They focus too much on the present and too little on the future. They complain about the food, focus on the present, not enough attention to where they're going the future. When they face difficulties, 
They have too much fear, too little faith. They had God after all. As you said, they had God after all. But all of a sudden, in the book of Midbar, they don't seem to remember that so much. In the book of Amimar, a recurring theme. They keep looking backwards. I remember what it was like in the good old days back when we were slaves and persecuted in Egypt. Instead of looking forward, what is it going to be like when we get to the promised land? The result is that almost an entire generation suffered the fate of Avraham's father. They left Egypt, but they did not make it to Israel. They knew how to leave, but not how to arrive. Rabbi, when you're saying and, that and let me just finish this point, so just to get this out. And that's why the book of Abimbar is so dark. You know, we need to try to learn from this. And the truth is that Shavuos, the holiday of Shavuos, is the perfect opportunity. This Sunday morning, we will reenact and relive standing at Sinai receiving the Torah from God. And we need to think to ourselves, where do we want to go with it? What is our destination? Okay, we've gotten here, but now where? Don't let your life just happen to you. Aim it. Direct it. And avoid the mistakes of the Jewish people in the Book of Amidah. Yes? Uh, no, Rabbi, I was just wondering, who would have nostalgia for slavery if you take the African-American... So why don't we back? leave that to the side? I'm no, just because saying, you had mentioned they look back and they right. said that so those were the good times. Let's leave that to the side for now. I'm just saying it is a recurring theme. Right. So it's, it's a good question. It's hard to imagine how that could be because right. but, it, but it occurs. Most nations don't look back with any fondness towards slavery. But they did. So it deserves an answer. We'll save that for another time. I want to share with you an article that occurred a few weeks ago in the New York Times. It's written by uh, David Brooks. I don't know if you follow him. I do follow him. A very interesting thinker. Now, I don't know if he wrote this article intending it to be a metaphor for the holiday of Shavuos, I wouldn't be surprised if he did. He is very knowledgeable about Judaism and Jewish thought, but it could be that he did not intend it, but I certainly read it. As soon as I read it, I knew that I wanted to share it with you on the Shabbos before, on the Thursday night before Shavuos because I see it as an incredible metaphor for the holiday of Shavuos and connecting very deeply with what I've just shared with you. So, here's what David Brooks said. This was 
on April 6th in the New York Times. He's talking about people that he admires, people that he meets that he admires. And he makes the point that the people that he admires the most are people whose lives have a two-mountain shape. A two-mountain shape. So let me describe what he means by that. He says a lot of people, they finish school, they start a career, they start a family, and they identify the mountain they thought they were meant to climb. They identify the, the arc that they believe their life is going to take. And they pursue that, some of them successfully, some less, some more. And let's say the ones who are successful for a moment, they're successful in their business, they're successful in their family, they're successful in pursuing happiness. And when people are in this part of their life, they have an assumption. There's an underlying assumption. And the assumption is, I can make myself happy. I can direct my life in such a way that if I do these things and follow these ways and achieve these goals, fulfillment will follow. <coughs> there are a lot of people in that category. That's nice. And if a person is successful, that's, that's very nice. I'm certainly very happy for them. But he says, Brooks says, the people that I really admire in life, it's not these people. The people that I really admire, he says, is the people that start this kind of an arc in whichever way you want to describe it. And then something happened to interrupt the linear forward motion. For some people, they were pursuing a career and they found, found it unsatisfying. Others were pursuing a path in life and they failed. Some people, Nebuch, lost a job or endured a scandal or some other phenomenon in life, God forbid, an illness or a loss. And all of a sudden, the arc that their life had been taking and that they felt it would take an arc of climbing in life, all of a sudden, they're not climbing, they're falling. And when they fall, the successes that they had earlier all of a sudden, they don't seem like such successes anymore. Life had thrown them into a valley. They fell off the mountain. 
Now, when that happens, Nebuch, some people break. Some people get smaller and more afraid and, again, Nebuch, it's a terrible tragedy. They never recover. But there are others who are broken open. In the words of Paul Tillich, suffering, nobody wants suffering. Nobody enjoys suffering. But it does happen to lots of people. And there is great variation in how human beings live their lives in the aftermath of significant suffering. Paul Tillich wrote, Paul Tillich was a great theologian. He wrote, suffering upends the normal patterns of life and reminds you that you are not who you thought you were. The basement of your soul is much deeper than you knew. And so, Brooks describes for some of these people who were climbing a mountain and then fell off and now they're down in the valley, but somehow they are able to see their situation and at least recognize what they do still have. And they at least recognize that they are about to be dragged on an adventure that will leave them transformed. It's not an adventure that they want. But there is within that adventure the potential for transformation. They realize that even though we go to school to prepare ourselves for what we think we're going to get out of life, our lives are actually defined by how we make use of the moment of greatest adversity. That is what truly defines the arc that our lives will take. And, and the, the point that he's making is his real admiration is for people whose lives have two mountains. There was an ark, a mountain, and they fell off into a valley. And then somehow, they were able to climb a different mountain. A mountain they never thought they were going to climb. They never wanted to climb. But they are able to climb it. And they are able to transform or to utilize that adversity into their greatest moment. So how do you do that, he says. And here's the, here's the line where I started to think about Shavuos. How do you do that? He says, first, you have to spend time in a desert. You have to spend time in a desert. It could be a literal desert or a metaphorical desert you have to spend some amount of time in solitude, in reflection. You have to be able to look into yourself 
and think about where do I want to go in life now? I thought I knew where I wanted to go in life, but that's not going to happen anymore. Now from the valley, where do I want my life to go? And that requires effort, introspection. It requires time in a desert. If you ask yourself, why did God... I, I asked this last week and gave a different answer. If you ask yourself, why did God take the Jewish people out of Egypt and take them into a desert in order to prepare them for coming into the land of Israel? David Brooks would say, because you have to spend time in an empty place in a place where you can think and reflect and look inside and figure out where you want to go. And some people are able to go through that experience and then to say, oh, that first mountain? That's not my mountain. I'm ready for a different mountain. I'm meant for a different mountain. He goes on to say, some people at a point like this will radically change their lives. He gives an example. It's heartbreaking. I know a woman whose son committed suicide. She says that the scared, self-conscious woman she used to be died with him. She found her voice and helps families in crisis. I recently met a guy who used to be a banker. That failed to satisfy. And now he helps men coming out of prison. Now, not everybody will radically change their lives. Some people will keep their same jobs, keep their same lifestyle. But their lives are different. It's not about myself, my ego anymore. It's about giving myself away. If the first mountain is about building up the ego and defining the self, the second mountain is about shedding the ego and dissolving the self. If the first mountain is about acquisition, the second mountain is about contribution. That's the book of Amipa. That's really what happens. And that's really the holiday of Shavuos. Shavuos is the first mountain, Mount Sinai. And they go up to this mountain and this dramatic scene occurs which we celebrate on, on, on Shavuos and then what happens? They fall. They fall as far down into the valley as you can go with the golden calf. And they then spend the rest of the 40 years traveling through a desert. And the purpose of traveling through that desert is to try to figure out how do we pick up these pieces and build something new? Where are we going? And it takes them 40 years till they reach, a little bit longer than 40 years, till they reach the second mountain which is Jerusalem.
And the Jewish people are able to fall off a mountain and make mistakes and go through a dark period and somehow be able to find within themselves by the end of the 40 years a direction through Moshe, through God, through their own strength, through their children and find a direction and come into Israel and create a new civilization and come to a second mountain. And that second mountain is much, much stronger than the first. Okay, I I prepared three pieces, but I think I'm not going to be able to get through all three. So I'm going to try to get through two. So this is ready for next year's year. (laughs) If you turn, please, to page... 1180. This also is based on an essay by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. This Shabbos we read the Parsha of Bamidbar and the Haftorah, which is on page 1180. I have to tell you personally, it's one of my favorite Haftoros of the whole year. And I would have to say, if it's possible to have a favorite prophet, Hosea is my favorite prophet. His writing is so beautiful, so romantic, so meaningful. So, if you take a look at the Haftorah, remember we've discussed this before, that the Haftorah is a passage from one of the prophets that thematically relates to the subject matter of the Torah reading. So this Haftorah is a prophecy from the prophet Hosea. If you look at the top line, page 1180, Pasuk number one, the prophecy that God tells Hosea to share with the Jewish people is, V'haya mispar b'nei Yisrael k'chol hayom, asher lo yimad v'lo yisafer. And it will be that the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea that can be neither measured nor counted. (coughs) What's the connection between the Haftorah and the Parsha? Well, the Parsha is about a census of the Jewish people. The beginning of our Parsha, God says to Moshe, count the Jewish people. And the Torah tells us how many people were in each of the tribes and gives us the total number just over 600,000 men between the ages of 20 and 60. And so it's about counting. So we know there's a number. How many Jews there were. So, Bamidbar begins with counting. And here we are, a prophecy that says, 
in the future, there'll be so many you won't even be able to count. So it's like a contrast between the past and the future. Okay. That's nice. But there's a second connection that I'd like to share. And it's based on the fact that almost every year, not exactly every year, but almost every year, this week's Torah portion by Midbar, and therefore this Haftorah from Hosea, is always, I say almost, like nine out of ten times, the Shabbos before Shavuos. And therefore, this Parsha and this Haftorah is an introduction to Shavuos. It is to get us ready. Especially this year for us. We have Shabbos and Saturday night and Sunday and Monday. What we read on Shabbos morning is preparing us for that night, for the next morning. It's fantastic. So let's pay attention to how the Haftorah is preparing us for Shavuos. If you look, please, I'm not going to read the whole thing. You should, can read it later. If you look, please, at the near the bottom of the page of 1180, Pasuk number 16, the, two lines from the bottom. L'chein hinei anochi mefateha. Therefore, God says, I will seduce her or use a different word speak tenderly to her hamidbar lead her I will lead her to the wilderness to the desert just skip a couple of to the top of the next page top line the Ansa Shama, I'm on eleven eighty one the top line, the Ansa Shama Kimeha, and she will call out to me there as in the days of her youth, Ukiyom Alosa me Eretz Mitzrayim, like the days after she left Egypt. In romantic poetic terms, the prophet is describing what will be a second honeymoon. That when the ultimate redemption comes and the Mashiach comes, the Messianic era arrives, it will be a second honeymoon reenacting the original honeymoon, the original marriage between God and the Jewish people when God spoke tenderly to the Jewish people and led us gently through the desert as we left Egypt to Mount Sinai. So, I want to focus on the fact that our sages in choosing this Haftorah as the introduction to Shavuos are making a statement about the nature of the holiday of Shavuos. What is it that happened on Shavuos? How 
how are we supposed to experience it and what is it that we are supposed to take from it? By placing this Haftorah with these words as the introduction to Shavuos, the lesson that we learn is Shavuos was the original honeymoon. Shavuos was the marriage between God and the Jewish people. Shavuos was the moment of the greatest intimacy, the moment of the greatest contact when God spoke directly to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. And so what Hosea says centuries later, he promises us that the ultimate redemption that we're waiting for when the Messiah comes and the Messianic era arrives, it will be a reenactment of that original honeymoon, right? He's promising us a second honeymoon. And I want you to focus, please, on one specific puzzle. Top of page 1181, Pusik 18 in the Hebrew, the second line, end of the second line, in the English, the beginning of the fourth line. A very famous Pusik. And this is what is going to happen on that day, which is what happened on the original honeymoon, right? If you're reenacting the honeymoon, what happens in the next one is, is a reenactment of what happened in the first one. But here's what's going to be on that day. Nu'um Hashem. These are the words of God. Tikri'i Ishi. You are going to call me, you, Israel, my bride, you're going to call me Ishi, my husband. Velotikri'i od Bali. You're not going to call me anymore Bali. Now, Bali, Baal, and Ish are two synonyms that mean husband. Right now, I don't want to focus on the difference between the meaning of Baal and Ish. It's not relevant to what I'd like to share with you. We can save that for another time. But for now, suffice it to say that the word, there are two synonyms for the word husband. One is Baal and the other is Ish. And God says what's going to be at that second honeymoon, which is a reenactment of the first one, which is Shavuos, is then you're going to call me Ishi, my husband, using the word Ish. What is the significance? Forget about the, the contrast to the other word. But what is the significance of the word Ish, meaning husband? So that is a quote from an earlier puzzle. So now I want you to turn back, please, to page 14, all the way to near the beginning. <coughs> On page 14, what I want to show you is that Hosea is actually quoting an earlier verse referring explicitly by quoting a word 
in an earlier verse. Pasuk number 22. Near the top of the page. This is right after the creation of the world. Our sages explained to us that this is on the sixth day of creation, just after God has created Adam. Adam realizes that all the animals have a mate, but he does not have a mate. God says, it's not good for man to be without a mate, a partner. Pasuk number 22. And God created from the, the different ways to translate this, but from the rib that he took from man, he creates Isha. Vayviel el ha'adam, and he brings her to Adam. Vayomer ha'adam, and Adam says, Zosapam, now I see this time, etzem me'atzomai. This is one who has a bone that is part of my bone. Ubatsar mibsari, and a flesh that is part of my flesh. Lezos yikarei isha. This I will call Isha Ki Me Ish Lukachazos taken from Ish. So there's Ish, and what is taken from Ish is Isha Ish man, Isha woman. What does that mean? A lot of different explanations, but our rabbis of the Talmud give a very interesting explanation. A rabbi say that originally God created one being with partsufim, with two faces facing in different directions. No back. And then God divided that one being so that each of them had a back but now that means they could face each other. One is Ish and the other is Isha. You have a word Ish and the second word means from Ish. In other words, the relationship of husband and wife is supposed to be a relationship where a husband and wife, a man and a woman, will mirror each other because they originally came from the same being. And they were separated and they are now reconnecting. Not connecting, but reconnecting. But now, let's pay attention to the way the metaphor is being used. Let's go back to page 1181. Sorry to make you uh, turn so many pages. Eleven eighty one. Hashem says to tell the prophet Hosea should say 
that what's going to happen in the ultimate redemption will be a reenactment of what happened on Shavuos at Mount Sinai. What happened at Shavuos? God said to the Jewish people and the Jewish people said to God, Ish and Isha, we are one. We are connected. You know, the truth is that if you look through the entire Torah, there are lots of, there's no way to actually name God or describe God. God is beyond our comprehension. But there are lots of metaphors. We refer to God as a creator. We refer to God as a teacher. We refer to God as a parent. There are a lot of different, we refer to God as a shepherd. We refer to God as a warrior. We refer to God as a law lawgiver. Lots of different metaphors that we use. And each one of those metaphors is used to imply a different kind of relationship. If God's a shepherd, that means I've got to listen to what he says. If God's a lawgiver, that means he's holding me accountable. If God is a parent, that means he tells me what to do and I've got to listen. Of all the metaphors, however, the most lovely and most intimate was of God as husband with Israel as his bride. And that's the metaphor that Hosea chooses to use. From this perspective, the Torah is more than a constitution and a code of laws. It is a constitution and it is a code of laws. But it's much more than that. It's much more than a set of instructions. It is a marriage contract. A token and gesture of love. And a marriage is created not by force. Not by coercion. But with faithfulness and trust and love. You could say that the Torah is law suffused with love. Love translated into law. And what Hosea is teaching us is that is the metaphor for what happened at Sinai that we need to understand and appreciate as the introduction to Shavuos. On Shabbos morning, we're about to approach Shavuos. What is it that we should think about and feel and experience on Sunday morning as we hear the Ten Commandments read? And that's the moment when we are reenacting that scene. Remember, we spoke about this before. Reading the Torah in Shul is supposed to be a recreation, a reenactment of what we are reading. We should see ourselves standing there. What is it that we should feel? Not that we are receiving laws that we are coerced to follow. Not that we are receiving instruction that we're required to do. It is That is all true. But the emphasis should be we are experiencing the most intimate and loving relationship with God. And that's the reason for the end of the Haftorah. Perhaps some of the most beautiful words in the entire Torah. Pasuk number 21. This is Hosea describing this second honeymoon which reflects the first honeymoon 
which is describing what happened at Shavuos in the way that we are supposed to, that we're supposed to feel it on Shavuos. What are you supposed to feel happen on Shavuos? The Erastich Lila Olam. I will marry you forever, God says to the Jewish people. The Erastich Li Betzedek Uba Mishpat Uba Chesed I will marry you with righteousness and justice and kindness and compassion. The Erastich Li Be'emuna and I will marry you with faithfulness, v'yadat es Hashem, and you will know God. That is the ultimate knowledge of God that we are supposed to feel on Shavuos. There are lots of other knowledges of God that we need to work on in other times. But on Shavuos, the knowledge of God that we're supposed to have, ve'erastich li be'emuna. God is married to us with faithfulness and love and kindness and compassion.